Today on Restitutio Offscript, we have Dan and Rose with me, Sean, and we're talking about tolerance in our quest to understand how the culture is shaping us and how we can understand how the Bible helps us to navigate what God thinks about these subjects. And I came across this amazing short soundbite from Rob Bell's podcast that I feel like is such a great example of hyper-individualism that I want to start by playing this and just sort of rehashing just a little bit what hyper-individualism is. For those of you who didn't hear us last week, hyper-individualism is the idea that, number one, you should look within yourself to find your deepest desires, and two, that you should make those desires reality over against any externals, whether it be other people or your culture or tradition or the Bible, and that becoming your authentic self is an end in itself worthy of sacrifice. And those who have the courage to pursue their inner desires to their end, those are the true heroes. So that's the whole idea of hyper-individualism. But I, I just wanted to play this clip from Rob Bell, the superstar ex-mega pastor, and see if you can hear it in his underlying assumptions. What do you say, Rose? Sounds awesome, Sean. <laughs> okay. There we go. So whenever people talk about the end of religion, when they end, talk about the end of Christianity or any other sort of, sort of thought system or worldview or perspective, remember, you can walk away from a lame system. And sometimes you need to. You just need to get out of there. And by the way, if you're part of any sort of community, specifically a religious community, and it loads you down with guilt and anxiety and burdens, don't do that to yourself. Life is difficult enough. Are you with me? Those of you who have been sitting in services that just make you feel terrible and weigh you down and don't help you, what are you doing? I, I officially give you permission to not do that if it's not good for you, if it doesn't build you up, if it doesn't help you grow into your, the best version of yourself, then don't do it. But you have an interior life. Okay, so did you hear it? <clears throat> what did you hear him saying? I heard him say the purpose of religion uh, is basically your gratification and growth the way you want it to be. Yeah. Did you hear anything? If you're not agreeing with something internally in your mind and in your heart, and it's uncomfortable and it's making you uncomfortable and maybe convicting you, then abandon it. I find it fascinating how he talks about guilt, that guilt is almost itself immoral. That's our culture these days. But look, if you're going to a church service, which is obviously what he's actually talking about here, and from the preaching you feel guilty, we call that godly sorrow and conviction of sin. And the proper response is not leaving the church. The proper response is repentance and working through it and asking God to deliver you from that issue. But what's fascinating is that he couched his advice in the language of becoming the best version of yourself. Mm. And I feel like that was the underlying assumption there. Yeah, no image of Christ. Yeah. So if the church is holding you back from becoming your authentic self, then leave the church. I give you permission. 
I thought that was a little that was funny too. It was it was a little presumptuous, like, oh, thank you, Rob Bell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to be hypercritical of Rob Bell. I mean, I, there's a lot of good stuff he does too, but I just found this particular statement to be a good example of what we were talking about last week. But we must press on, or else we will never discuss tolerance and. What I want to do to start is just introduce the topic of tolerance and how we're thinking about it here before going on to illustrate it a little bit and talk about some pros and cons. So tolerance is the idea that everyone should have the freedom to be themselves. You shouldn't try to change people or hold them to your standards. You certainly shouldn't push your religion on others because after all, religion is a private matter. And... Therefore, proselytizing or even evangelism is, in some sense, an immoral thing to do. You shouldn't label, define, or stereotype people. You can't put your morality on others. Uh, for example, slogans such as, don't judge me, and live and let live express this idea. So whereas hyper-individualism focuses on becoming and expressing your authentic self, tolerance is all about extending that freedom to others. Whereas hyper-individualism says, I'll be me, tolerance says, you do you. So, do either of you have any examples in the culture of this that you can think of? I think in America, we value very highly personal freedom. We use it to distinguish ourselves from other cultures and, even, and you know other countries. And it's something that we cherish. Uh, and there's a lot of great things about that religious freedoms and almost any other freedom you can imagine we get to enjoy here. So religious freedom would be an example of yeah. tolerance. Feeding off what you said, I think the popularity of a lot of kind of a la carte Eastern uh, religions and kind of spirituality options um, creates a lot of freedom and a lot of um, sense of being spiritual while, you know, inclusion is a huge deal. And unlike Christianity, you know, which holds one way to God, you kind of create your own way, and then it's also on you to respect other people's ways. It's the uh, religion buffet. You, <laughs> yeah. You take what you want, and you leave what you don't want. Yeah. Another example is the uh, coexist. Oh, the coexist bumper, stickers. bumper sticker. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So each letter is a different religious or cultural symbol. And it spells out coexist, which is the idea of we all need to get along with each other. The example I thought of was the BuzzFeed commercial of President Obama, and I'm not going to play it on the podcast because it's mostly visual, but on the BuzzFeed page for it, the titles for the various little clips are, so what does President Obama do when no one's around? He checks himself out in the mirror and makes funny faces. He tries out new looks and sketches pictures of his crush. He busts out a selfie stick to get the perfect angle and he even blames Obama when things go wrong. <laughs> and the example for that is he couldn't fit his cookie into his glass of milk to dunk it. And then he says, Obama. And then at the end of it, it says he might be the president of the United States, but he's also human. And that's the part where he's pretending to shoot a basketball and his aide walks in. And there's this awkward exchange. And Obama says, can I live? <laughs> and the aide says... You do you. And so it's the idea that you can't force upon Barack Obama what it means to be presidential. He's a regular guy, too. Can he live, too? Can you please not 
pigeonhole him into a certain mindset. So the aide says, you do you. Which I think is like the slogan of, of tolerance is that, you know, you do you, I'll do me, and everyone will be a happy family. All right, so let's talk about some benefits of tolerance. You already mentioned religious freedom. Uh, any other examples of benefits? A lot of it is the way you can kind of look at our culture. I mean, even the way our culture has changed. Um, we do have the freedom of religion, which has been around, you know, since the First Amendment. Another thing recently, you know, since the days of Martin Luther King Jr. has been racism. Not gone, but largely um, decreased from how it was. Another benefit I was thinking of is that tolerance opens up for people to express themselves. That leads to a more colorful and interesting society. In Europe, you know, a lot of times they ask the question, why is it in Europe that the church has largely diminished, whereas religion in America, especially Christianity, but even other religions, have flourished? And what's so interesting is that in European countries, every country had a state-sponsored religion. So the, the religion had the power of the government behind it, and everyone was sort of like forced to at least acknowledge that faith or you know, pay a tax to support it, even if they didn't go to any services. Whereas in America, there's no religious tax. Everything's voluntary, and we have the megachurches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Think- so what's the deal with that? I think people are designed to push against anything that they feel compelled to do. I'd be much more attracted to something that I could take ownership of and that I could choose based on its merits to me and not just because my government handed it down to me and legislated it for me. Yeah, so that's another benefit of tolerance is that you get a lot more options and the people who, you know, for example, Bible-believing people have the freedom to, to worship Uh, But so does everybody else, and that cuts down on hypocrisy, and it enables evangelism. I think the reduction of hypocrisy is huge. I think about Paul talking, and he was talking to the church, but saying, I'd much rather have you be hot or cold than lukewarm. And I think for a long time in America, there was a version of lukewarm and generally accepted, even if it wasn't a state religion, um, Christianity, which even now, being in much more of a hyper-tolerant culture, there isn't as much hypocrisy, and if you're following Christ normally, it's uh, your choice, not because the culture pressured you into it. All right, so let's talk about some detriments. Tolerance can have a negative impact on discourse. So you're going to have to explain that a little bit. Because sure. Tolerance, when I hear that word, I just think of good things. Right. That's my default. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how is it going to impinge on discourse? Well, if... You live in a tolerant society as we do, and you happen to believe uh, something or you just want to talk about something that the society might deem as being intolerant, you're less likely to talk about it. You're less likely to bring up that topic of conversation or that particular angle on that topic of conversation. That's really deep because tolerance on the surface would make you think that you're going to put up with people who disagree with you. I mean, that's basically the definition of tolerance. Mm -hmm. But if you disagree with showing tolerance to some behavior or some belief system or whatever, then you are going against the principle of tolerance. And when that happens, tolerance 
cannot tolerate it. Yeah, there's definitely a uh, <laughs> gets dicey. A hypocrisy there, and there's a where there's tolerance. I guess you could say is selectively enforced. Tolerance is all about a stasis, right? For the most part, it's not out to reform. It's not out to change. It's your method of dealing with other people and the way that they choose to be. So in that sense, does people yeah. expect it to help or just help you deal with it? Tolerance is just sort of like putting up with something that's different or annoying. Or Not actively working against it or speaking out against it. Right. That's another great point because Martin mm-hmm. Luther King said, we cannot tolerate these conditions anymore. We must organize. We must fight for our rights mm-hmm. and practice civil disobedience in order to achieve equality. So that's an example of intolerance producing a moral good. Another problem with tolerance is that it reduces morality to behaviors that affect others. And so what do you say to the guy with the gambling addiction? He doesn't have any dependents. He doesn't have any family that he's affecting by ruining his wealth. He's got all kinds of financial woes, but he's not hurting anyone. Mm-hmm. But tolerance it says I should put up with his lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. It can lead to not marginalization, but what's the opposite of compassion? Uh, indifference? Yeah. It can lead to an indifference towards people. You don't really care about them or want to engage with them or help them. You're just like, all right, mm-hmm. they're doing them, so I should just leave this situation alone. Mm. Yeah. But what if you could speak into that situation? What if you could actually say something that would turn someone's life around and help them, right? Yeah, I've heard it said that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. You know, going back to this idea of selective tolerance, in preparing for this episode, I went back to the whole Cecil the Lion episode. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Where this guy went off on a on a big game hunt in Africa, and he happened to kill a, a well-beloved lion. And, you know, whether or not you agree or disagree with, with big game hunting, what eventually happened was that the country of Zimbabwe didn't prosecute this guy. There wasn't any law broken. But the effect that that it had in the states was just a massive amount of outrage, and you know I would characterize it based on what happened as as sort of social bullying. I mean, this guy had mm. to go into hiding with his family for for fear wow. of their safety. They picketed mm-hmm. his 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 office. He was a dentist, and again, I'm not saying you know he did nothing wrong or that big game hunting is fine, but there's this sort of um, ill-defined line that, especially in social media, that if you transgress it you know, you can open yourself up to some serious abuse. It sounds like a very intolerant society. Yeah, I mean, as far as big game hunting goes, you know. The tolerance ideal, if if we deconstruct it a little bit, is is really not, it's not being true to its own name. (laughs) Because tolerance, according to Merriam-Webster, is the willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different than your own. So this dentist wants to go hunt a lion that's different than your own beliefs. So the idea of tolerance is that you accept that belief or that habit of someone else who's different than your own. But that's exactly the opposite of what happened. They did not accept it, so they persecuted him, they picketed him, they threatened him, they slandered him on social media, in the news, all over the place. And they did it with glee. It was a... Righteous indignation. Yeah, it was a identifiable phenomenon 
it was, it was a bandwagon that people hopped on and big game hunting has been going on for years and it continues to go on to this day but because mm-hmm. this lion happened to be well known now all of a sudden it's a huge issue nobody tolerates everything our culture tends to put two limitations on it one is you can't harm anyone else and the other is you can't show intolerance to anyone else. and these are really to keep it viable if they don't have these two exceptions tolerance is not a viable working model right you know, and who defines what's tolerant and what isn't tolerant. And if you find yourself on the wrong side of that line, you don't speak out because why would you expose yourself to potential abuse? Yeah. Going back to Cecil the lion, what was the principle violated? Was it the no harm principle or no tolerance? It was probably the no harm. Mm -hmm. The idea that he was harming the lion, but, but that doesn't really stack up because big game hunting has existed for millennia. The other part about Cecil's story is that the big game trade over there, the economy around big game hunting is a big part of, uh, it's one of the few that I know of in Zimbabwe or, you know, in a lot of places of Africa where tourists who are, who are very well off will pay extremely large sums of money to do this practice. So the do no harm principle, if you were to eradicate big game hunting, you would be harming the economic standing of people that are employed in that mm-hmm. trade. And so it is with many industries. Yes. A lot of gray areas. Yeah. So where that line falls and there's no point of reference. It's whatever the whatever the culture feels like supporting or condemning. It's almost like just jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. And if you're on the bandwagon with everyone else, then you know you're safe. Oh yeah, totally. So that's not really a very tolerant society. How about the example of watching pornography for tolerance? Now, here in this example, the person doing it is not hurting anyone else. And you could even argue that he's supporting actors and distributors and publishers and the economy. Why should he not watch pornography? And I know some people will say, well, then he should be able to watch pornography. But... There is also a downside to it because watching a lot of pornography leads to objectifying women and that can skew his future relationships with people and it can end up causing a lot of relational pain in essentially every future relationship he has. It can even lead to antisocial behavior and crime. There's science to back this up. This isn't, you know... It's not a uniquely conservative, perspective. Yeah, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. There's there's any number of, of psychologists, feminists, wh- whoever you want to mention that are really starting to talk about the detriments of porn. There's a um, article in the Washington Post. I just love the headline here. It's, is porn immoral? Question mark. That doesn't matter. It's a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is on a Washington Post website. You can Google it. Going down into, into the story a little bit, it talks about how, you know, there's been studies done for the past 40 years and I think even longer but a recent meta-analysis of of studies between those years from seven different countries concluded that pornography consumption is associated with an increased likelihood of committing acts of verbal or physical sexual aggression regardless of age and a 2010 meta-analysis of several studies found an overall significant positive association between pornography use and attitudes supporting violence against women so even from a non-christian perspective we need to start looking at porn in a different light in light of you know this research that's been done 
And yet, from a secular point of view, tolerance plays into discussions around porn. Like you said, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm, I'm right. alone in my bedroom. Or another example is abortion. Should women have the right to choose to have an abortion? And this one's really fascinating as a test case for tolerance because mm. it pits two freedoms against each other. The freedom of the woman, the mother, to have a right to choose and the freedom of the child, the baby, to have a right to, well, the baby is not going to choose, but live, right? Whose freedom is more valuable? And what's so ironic about that is that in our society today, those who push for tolerance most vehemently often end up curtailing the human rights of children in the womb. So, I mean, the most intolerant thing you can ever do to someone is to kill them. But it's, that's a really fascinating test case because you do have two freedoms coming into conflict with each other, mm -hmm. and it's not clear on a tolerance-only principle of life or even the no-harm principle. Right. Yeah. Which way to go with that one? I think it's easy to argue that life wants to continue living. Mm -hmm. So in the case of abortion, it's freedom versus freedom pitted against each other. And um, the freedom that won out was the freedom of the vocal population. Right. One of the things I find interesting about tolerance, and it really, I think, deconstructs this whole principle as a sole guiding light for deciding what to do as a society, is how it relates to God. Because if someone doesn't believe, take an atheist, for example, an atheist doesn't believe in God, so it's not clear why they should always show tolerance. If, for example, they know they can get away with it and it would benefit them, then why not show intolerance? I don't believe there are very many pure atheists where that's their function and that's all they are. I think many atheists are humanists. Um, which introduces a value system, um, the value being humans and ethical treatment and the preservation of society and also, you know, self-valuing. Because I think they do need some sort of moral structure to make decisions on. I just don't know if humanism is consistent with an evolutionary mindset. Because if we are nothing more than evolved slime and the whole process of evolutionary creation comes from domination and survival of the fittest and reproduction, then I just don't see, and maybe somebody else can show me how this works, but I don't see how you get from that survival of the fittest mentality to not taking advantage of situations that impinge on the freedom of others. Like in the animal kingdom, this happens all the time. Two males battle it out. The mm -hmm. one that wins gets to reproduce. So... And in theory, becomes stronger. And becomes stronger, mm -hmm. right? On atheism, it's not clear why tolerance makes sense. On theism, if you believe in God, then shouldn't we care about hurting God's feelings? Shouldn't we care about what God says, not just how I'm affecting other people? In other words, I'm not just free to say, oh, you do you. If there's a God, then God cares what you're doing. So... Tolerance fails on atheism, and I think it fails on theism as a strict philosophy of life. Here's the real crux of the matter, right? On tolerance, you should extend freedom to others. However, it's not clear what to do when freedoms contradict each other. Yeah. There are any number of situations where competing interests come into play, and then you're relying on your own interpretation of what you want to do, which often comes down to selfishness and 
personal experience, and these are all subjective things. I think with tolerance, there's a sort of false morality to it that doesn't really exist. You're constantly making judgments. And it's funny because mm-hmm. tolerance is based on the principle of not judging. Of not judging, right? Yeah. Not being judgmental. Yeah. But sparks fly a lot, and then it's a judgment call. So let's bring on board the Christian perspective now that we've dissected tolerance a bit and turn the idea over what do we see from the bible on this subject so i think if you were to ask jesus about you know his thoughts on tolerance and it was sort of a sermon on the mount perspective i could picture him saying you've heard in time past you shall tolerate your neighbor he says i say to you love your neighbor Uh and typical of jesus in a sermon on the mount type context he says you know society has one value he raises the bar and says i'm going to ask you to do something that's so much harder but so much better rather than tolerating your neighbor Raise the bar. Love your neighbor. Two main principles of Christianity, as Jesus taught us, are to love God and to love our neighbor as mm. ourselves. I think what we're talking about is that true love, as defined in the Bible, is not a passive act. Right. Whereas tolerance, by definition, is a passive act. You're, you know, there's nothing required of you but to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. coexist and live and let live. And whereas love. Uh, there's a certain measure of confrontation, you could say, putting yourself out there. Well, love gives of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I, what I hear you saying is that love is risky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And courageous. And it connects. Because a cowardly person would just tolerate the behavior, be like, yeah, that's Dan. He's in the bathroom again with his laptop. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a problem, but we don't talk about it because we love him. Well, that's not really love. Especially not if it's It's tolerate. It's tolerance, but it's, you know, from a biblical point of view, true love puts itself out there for the good of the other, even at risk of the relationship. And that's scary, but that's the riskiness of true love. And Jesus did this all the time. Jesus would have times of tenderness and he'd have times of toughness, and it would depend on the need of the moment. Tolerance is safe. Tolerance is for sickness. True love, I mean, that's where it's at. True love, as opposed to tolerance, comes from God. It doesn't come from a person's understanding of what's wrong and what's right. It comes from what the Bible says. You're not relying on human and therefore fallible understanding. You're relying on divine understanding. As Christians, how we understand love is all wrapped up with how we see Jesus doing it in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Because we have so many examples of how he treated people, and the ultimate example, of course, is the cross itself. Mm -hmm. And so he's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of others. He's not willing to tolerate sin. He's willing to sacrifice for sin. That's so much deeper. But yet he walks among the sinners to draw them out of their sins. not like he's uh, high and mighty and and too good for them. He engages, he goes out, he actively does it, but seeking to draw them to holiness. I think you can make the argument that Christianity is pro-tolerance. I don't think that Christ calls us to... Take over the world? Yeah, take over the world or or Mm -hmm. get into the government or picket a gay marriage law. or You know, I don't personally feel that that's what Christ is is calling us to do. Mm -hmm. The example from Jesus is that he targets the heart, not the system. Because mm-hmm. the system is comes from man. It's not a godly system. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of great things about democracy, 
but it's by no means a perfect political system. So it wouldn't make sense for him to, to reform or try to change or try to fix the system because it's not of God. Well, think about what Jesus was able to accomplish by doing what he did. I mean, he ignites a movement that today claims over 2 billion people. His perspective was also so much larger than those of his day that railed against the system. And you see him talking to Pontius Pilate and saying, you would have no power if it were not given you from above. He knew the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of God. And he was he, just so unconcerned about it. Right. He knows Rome is going to fall eventually. All that is going to be temporary, but his kingdom will endure. One of the things that I was thinking about as far as the Christian perspective on tolerance and this whole idea of love is that love calls us to a relationship with God where we trust God. And trust requires giving up some freedoms. You know what I mean? And especially when it's, we're talking about trusting God. So if you trust God that he knows what he's talking about when it comes to what's right and what's wrong, then you give up the freedom to be God yourself, to determine for yourself what's right and what's wrong. And in so doing, you are free from stressing about lining up all these different worldviews and trying to measure them out and see which one's best. And then you are able to enjoy a relationship with God because you're, you're free from all the baggage. Yeah. John 8, 31 says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Bible says that, you know, anybody that commits sin is a slave to sin. Right. Once you stop habitually sinning and you start lining your life up with the values that are presented in the Bible, that's not to say you'll never sin again, but you're free from the bondage of sin where your mind and your body and your heart is so wrapped up in wanting to do your own will and all of the negative things that come with that. Getting a good grasp on what sin is and how it's invisible mm -hmm. to us, like food stuck in our teeth. Sometimes everyone else can see our sin, <laughs> but we can't, and uh, we just go on merrily. But the Bible holds up a mirror mm -hmm. and it says, hey, this is what God says is right. This is what God says is wrong. And you have fallen short, just like every other human other than Jesus. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. You know what? That's step one. Yeah. Humility. I'm not God. He is. I'm not perfect. He is. I've sinned. I don't know which way is up from a moral perspective. I need help. And so ironically, the Christian ethic begins with humility. However, somehow we get from there to uh, everyone else better shape up and do the same thing I'm doing, you know? And, and sometimes that's true, you know? What God says, God said, and we can't change that. Right. But at the same time, I see in the scripture God giving people an incredible amount of freedom to choose him or reject him. And I think we have to give people that same freedom as Christians, as believers in God. So this is kind of a trite example, but I always think about Sean talking about, you know, if you have a problem in your life, uh, it's kind of like the food in your teeth and you don't necessarily know unless you have something like, the, you know, the word of God to be your standard or someone else to tell you. There's kind of this code among women that if I have food in my teeth, if my makeup is smeared, or the worst, if my tag is sticking up, <laughs> if you're my sister, you will tell me. And there's sort of some built-in humility because when someone tells you that, uh, you're not gonna say, well, you look ugly today. Yeah. You're gonna say, thank you so much for telling me and for helping me out with this. And I think about uh, in Proverbs where it says, 
uh, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. That's how we are, you know, among our sisters when we respect each other and watch out for that. I would love to be more like that in the Christian community where, you know, if I have a serious error in my life, that someone could come confront me with that and I would receive it with humility and make changes. Yeah. And not call them intolerant, but say, thank you for being that mirror in my life. You reminded me of Proverbs 27, 6 that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, <laughs> but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Yeah. So don't tell me I'm beautiful if I'm not. <laughs> Put my tag down. <laughs> There's some ancient wisdom for all of us. <laughs> what defines a friend versus an enemy? I think it's the heart. If I'm telling you that you've got some issue and I'm saying it to embarrass you in front of a group of people, then I'm your enemy. But mm-hmm. if I'm doing it because I care about you and I don't want you to feel embarrassed later on when you find out or whatever and I pull you to the side, that's the kind of love that we're talking about. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, that couldn't be any more different than the word tolerance than yeah. you could possibly be. This is saying don't tolerate people. Don't think you're number one. You just have to tolerate them. This is saying... No, whoever you're with, put their concerns over yours. It goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Mm. So we are, we are in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. Mm. Look, if we could just stay true to this ourselves as Christians, what kind of a revolution could we instigate in our own culture, in our own society, in our own relationships. I mean, this is powerful stuff. I think you could say tolerance is nice, but this is phenomenal. (laughs) So much better than tolerance. The standard set out in Philippians 2 is so much higher than the standard in tolerance. Yeah. And then it goes on to give the example of Jesus. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which is the most humiliating, painful, shameful way to die Mm -hmm. in our society. And that's the example Paul says is for us. We think of Jesus' death most of the time as something that he accomplishes for us, so we don't have to do it. What Paul's saying is, well, actually, that's our example on how we're supposed to treat each other. Yeah. <laughs> so go out and live it. Go and do likewise. Right, right. And I feel like Christians, we know about Ephesians 5, at least those of us who have uh, thought about marriage, the husband's supposed to love the wife as Christ loved the church. But what Philippians 2 is saying is that actually we're supposed to love everyone as Christ loved the church <laughs> and gave himself for her. So that's pretty cool. So pulling this all together, Christianity is pro-tolerance, but not with the same limitations as our culture. Instead of shaming people for their lack of tolerance or intervening only when they harm others, the Christian view looks to humility and love. And Jesus, as our example of how to deal with tough situations... We have to recognize our own finitude, our own limitations, and leave defining morality to God, who's alone qualified to do it. Then we look for ways to love God and love others as ourselves. There are a lot of aspects of tolerance that are compatible with Christianity, and there are some that are completely incompatible. But what Christianity has to say to the culture and to say to us as we engage the culture is we need to love. And we need to love in outrageous cross-shaped ways. And when Mm. we do that, it'll get people's attention. I think it will. Any final thoughts? I do think Christianity has a PR problem, and we may have sort of bludgeoned people um, Mm. over the head with our morality. 
in the past, but I think to extend to them the example of Christ, the loving, sacrificial example of Christ, and then morality that is an expression of love because of that, I think that will help our PR problem. Yeah, and it's just so much more accepted. I mean, somebody preaching fire and brimstone isn't going to have the same impact of somebody that truly goes out and loves somebody in humility and tells them what the Bible says about something. And, you know, that's a hard thing to do. It's much harder than tolerating people. Mm-hmm. You could tolerate somebody by keeping your mouth shut. And, you know, I think that's a lot of what toleration is in, mm-hmm. in this day and age. But to take it into an active, the realm of being active with love is so much more effective, I feel, and it lines up with what the Bible says. Well, that was interesting. We're going to talk next week about, what are we talking about, progress? Next week Progressivism. We're gonna, next week we're going to talk about yeah. progress, how our culture thinks about progress, and what Christianity says about that. This is Sean and... We've got to prepare this in advance. I can't wing it. Thanks for listening, guys. And as always, please leave us feedback. We check the comments every week and we incorporate your feedback into the show and anything that, you know, this is only three episodes long. So anything that you can add to make it better, definitely let us know about on uh, restitudio.org. This is Rose. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to encourage you to engage with us. If our conversation sparked interest or sparked opinion in you, please leave a comment and join the conversation. This is Sean. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.